0: their own interest above what's best for the public at large. The so-called public servants are self-serving. They serve themselves at the expense of the people. They succeed in part because the public is not paying attention. The public is easily distracted by entertainment, great, atle- great athletic events and tournaments. The rulers can construct grandiose, extravagant schemes which are going to serve as a monument to their own greatness. Everybody's going to remember who they were and what they did. But when those plans start to go a little sideways, with with some collateral damage, well, the blame is shifted to others. The government villainizes and blames its failures on those who are not its loyal supporters. As it turns out, Christians... Who are seeking to live good and moral lives in the midst of an increasingly immoral society, those Christians are singled out as easy targets. They are called intolerant. They're derided as do gooders who follow a myth. These Christians pay the price of harassment by the authorities and a public turned against them. The masses seem to enjoy watching them condemned and attacked. How can all this be possible? in a country that has been long held up as a, a bastion of democracy, that it was, it was supposed to be history's heir to the legacy of the democracy of ancient Greece. Can these things happen in a society that has long embraced the ideals of the rule of law and that government exists to serve its citizens? Can a society that prided itself on its freedom of religions or willingness, openness to multiple religions, can a society that once attributed its overwhelming prosperity to the piety of its people and the, the moral goodness of its people, can that society so quickly devolve? Can a good good form of government so easily become an oppressive machine that systematically destroys those who put allegiance to their faith above their allegiance to the government? Does the time I describe sound familiar? The era I'm describing is first century Rome. That's the cultural context And that is the cultural setting that Mark is written to. If you notice any parallels, then that tells you that you've got something in common with these whom Mark is writing to. You've probably got something to hear from what Mark has to say. This is an environment in which Christians soon found themselves soon after the uh, resurrection. In the first several decades, the church was persecuted and opposed Especially by the Jewish leadership in the synagogues and so forth. And, and yet they often found peaceful coexistence among the Roman society and Roman authorities. Often in it Acts, it's the Roman officials who take the side of the minority Christians against either Jewish religious or secular opposition. The Roman authorities are seen taking side with and providing some shelter to the church. But by the early 60s, that was no longer the case. What happened? Well, what happened especially and particularly was the Emperor Nero. His first few years weren't so bad, but then Nero seemed to go sideways. And he, he began to do a lot more things that were serving himself. And And uh, one of those was, well, a great crisis erupted around a great fire in Rome. The the uh, The majority of the city ended up being burned. The fire spread much further than it was supposed to. But initially, it soon appeared, and the populace began to believe that the emperor himself had Started this fire that spread and tore through Rome as a whole. The emperor started the fire in order to clear space for his new extravagant palace, this new monument to his own glory. And yet, when the, when the, when the masses began to turn against him, he needed a victim, and he found that victim in the Christians. Because didn't the Christians say anyway that their God was going to destroy this world with fire one day? And so, seemingly, they just took it upon, him, upon themselves to get that started. The Christians were already derided as do-gooders. They were, they were considered intolerant because they did not also embrace the various religions of Rome, including the, the emperor worship cult, which is a cult uh, uh, to serve the government itself. They're already derided, now Christians are persecuted mercil- mercilessly and the crowds fill the stadiums to, uh, to roar their approval. Imagine you are a Christian in that kind of environment. You are, an, you are a Christian where the, where the mood of the culture is against you. You are a Christian where if you stand out as a Christian, where your faith is more important than any other allegiance, it's going to be like whack-a-mole. It's going to be like whack-a-mole, sorry. If you, if you, if you pop up, if you stand up above others, you're going to get cut down. And so, what would you tend to do in an environment like that? You'd intend to—you would tend to lay low. You would tend to not be noticed. You would intend to draw back. That's not the kind of environment that you find it easy to to proclaim your faith and to spread it and to, and to try to share it with others. As a Christian in this difficult time, it's easy to be intimidated into silence. That's the context of the Gospel of Mark. That's, what's Mark's, that, that's what Mark is writing to and that's why Mark writes what he writes. So we take this Gospel of the servant in that framework from that perspective. Mark is written to gently graciously provoke God's people. Mark is is, is written to provoke God's people to proclaim the Gospel of the suffering servant even if it's going to cost them to do so. Mark provokes God's people to fear him instead of Nero, to serve their Savior, never mind the government. In this way, Mark is, is quietly subversive. The Gospel of Mark could be circulated in Rome, and it doesn't say anything against the Roman government. That's the beauty of it. And yet it quietly but powerfully provokes God's people as they read it to stand up, to speak out, to go and to tell even as Jesus told them to do. I want to show this morning that aspect of Mark, the gospel of the faithful servant. Mark shows Jesus as a suffering servant. The gospel of Mark graciously, sensitively calls us to follow him because we are the servant's servants. If he is the servant of the Lord, we are his servants. We follow him as servants of the servant of the Lord. That's what Mark calls us to. First of all, then it makes the point that Jesus is, Jesus as the Son of God is God's faithful servant. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If if, if you're using a pew Bible this morning, you'll find us on page 836. 836, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. It says... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. There's a connection back to the Old Testament now. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So immediately, right out of the box, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You and I might not recognize it, but that's a, that's a direct confrontation to Rome. Because the emperors considered themselves to be the son of God. Nero wanted to be recognized as a son of God, though not everybody around him affirmed it. And here, Jesus, this one who suffered and was executed by Rome, he is the son of God. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations, my righteousness to the world. That's what Isaiah said about this suffering servant who would come. So in Mark chapter 1, in the first couple of verses, you, we already hear echoes back to the Old Testament, the, the one who was going to come. God's messenger, God's servant has come. We, we also have an allusion to, to Psalm 2, just a couple of verses down. Look at verse 11. When, when Jesus comes to, to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and there he is baptized by, by John, and the, the whole story is moving very quickly. But when that happens, verse 11, a voice came down from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. There's an echo all the way back to, to uh psalm 2 let's turn over to psalm 2 back in the old testament psalm 2 i found job i went too far coming back a little bit to the book of psalms and the second psalm psalm 2 why did the nations rage the people plot in vain against the lord against his anointed the lord in heaven laughs he holds them in derision he says that he will speak to them in his wrath he will terrify them in his fury I have set my king on Zion, my holy, my, my holy hill. There's Matthew. And now here comes, here comes Mark in verse 7. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So when Jesus is declared the Son of God, there's a, there's a hearkening back to, to Psalm 2. And that declaration of who he really is is going to come out to us again. It's going to come a little later in the Gospel of Mark. But Jesus is the Son of God, the faithful servant. What does that imply? That that promise out of Isaiah and that reference to Psalm 2 imply that this gospel concerning Jesus, the Christ, is about this. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the long-awaited redemption in, and, and, and restoration. That all that had been promised is going to be fulfilled in him. He is going to make it right. And so immediately... And that's a key word in Mark. Immediately begins to happen. The word immediately or at once drive Jesus into action. In fact, I think it occurs nine times in the first chapter. Jesus immediately steps into it. And that the, um, the things that you see in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in that first chapter, let me just scan through here. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus um, faces temptation by the devil and defeats him. Jesus travels from the Judean wilderness all the way up to Galilee. He calls his first disciples. He 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 casts out a, a an unclean spirit, a demon. He heals numerous people. He casts out more demons. He touches and cleanses a leper. All of that is in Mark chapter one. None of the other Gospels start this way. None of the other Gospels thrust Jesus into service so quickly. He's the servant of the Lord. He's the one who has come to bring in this promise of restoration, and so he sets about doing just that. Immediately, straight away, the word means. And, and it, it, it's actually a play on words, because what Jesus begins to do is to straighten out that which is crooked. He begins to set which is wrong right in this broken creation. He can't help but do it because of who he is. It flows out of him. And so you see that setting right. The faithful servant is doing right and is setting things right in the midst of God's broken creation. And so the prophesied servant of the Lord, he takes Israel's place, I mentioned, is that true servant. The son of man who comes not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The servant has come to serve. That's what, how, we're, how Jesus portrayed to us in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is portrayed not as a victim. He's not the victim of Rome. He's not the victim of the Jewish leadership. Jesus is intentionally serving. He's intentionally giving his life a ransom for many. In fact, he, he, he tells his disciples this in advance as he's beginning to reveal to them, how do the disciples respond? He's the, he's the faithful servant. He's the one who continues to be about his father's business. How do we see the disciples in this gospel? You think, well, this is an example of how we're supposed to serve. Then, well, we ought to see it in the disciples, right? Not so much. The disciples draw back. They're afraid. They cower in fear. Did you know the the walking on the water of Peter coming to Jesus. When they're in the storm in the boat at night, it occurs in Matthew and in Mark. But Mark leaves the part out about, Jesus, or about Peter stepping out of the boat. Mark just presents the disciples there. He only tells the part of the story about the fear of the disciples. And that's for a purpose. They, they, they cower in fear. They dismiss the needs of the masses. Jesus, send them away. We don't have any food for them. They dispute him when he announces to them his coming death. They argue about their own positions in the coming kingdom. They find fault with others who are preaching the gospel of Jesus, who aren't part of their group. When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, the disciples run away. And Mark gives the fullest picture of that, even of the young man in the group who loses his own tunic in the process. And most, most of tradition tells us that's actually Mark himself. That's his own little cameo in the midst of the gospel. But he gives us the fullest glimpse of the fear and the denial of the disciples. They were afraid. They did cower They did draw back in that environment that found themselves in. They are poor representatives of the one who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Mark chose Jesus as a servant who will give his life. Because of that, he emphasizes the sufferings of Christ. You see the opposition against Jesus from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 16. You see the, the predictions of the sufferings of the disciples as well. This is going to resonate with Christians who are in Rome. But why? Because they are going to be, they're going to be the emperor's scapegoats. They are going to feel the emperor's wrath along the way. Now, if, if, uh, if that's the case, if he tells them they're going to suffer, that's not the news they're looking for, is it? They're looking for him to restore all things. They're looking for him to set things right. Immediately, straight away, make things as they're supposed to be. And he doesn't do that. And he tells them, by the way, not only am I going to suffer, but you're going to suffer. Turn with me over to Mark chapter 8. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. In verse 31, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. Peter takes him aside, and you know how that goes. But then he, he fills this out a little bit for, for his disciples. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples in verse 34, he says, If anyone would come after me. If anyone would be my follower, my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me as I take up mine. When we see in the Gospel of Mark, his disciples didn't do that, not even Mark. Whoever would, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Verse thirty. 8. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's a reminder that there is suffering now but there's glory to come. But but first of all, let's hold off. The disciples are expecting him to establish his kingdom, to make things right. And yet here he says, I'm going to suffer and he calls them to join him in that suffering. They withdraw. They they draw back. They're resistant. They have their objections. They have their fears. And you know, so do we. Some of the fears that they have are not unlike some of the fears that we have. They were afraid, how do we have the provisions? I don't have the resources to do what I see that needs to be done. So we just need to look after ourselves first. Sometimes that, that sounds familiar for us, doesn't it? I don't have the provisions to meet those needs. I've got to look out for my own needs. The disciples would have sent the crowds away. There's no way we can feed all of them. We just have a little. And Jesus responds to that, feeding the 4,000, feeding the 5,000. Will, how will we be received if I speak up for Jesus? If I become his messenger, if I'm going to, going to stand up and proclaim, how am I going to be received? Well, some are going to accept him, some are going to reject him. All through Jesus' ministry, we, we see that pattern, don't we? Some accept him, and some reject him. There's no guarantees. How will we be received? I, I, I'm concerned, when, when I step out, over here at the student center, I, 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 I'm trying to to figure out, how can I, okay, we, we, we bring in pizza on Wednesdays, how can I sit down with students, not just have them line up, grab their pizza and go, how can I sit down and use that as an opportunity to engage with these students that God sends our way? There are students hanging around outside, not coming in, but on our property, and, and uh, we don't know necessarily what kind of trouble they're getting in amongst themselves, although we get glimpses of it now and again, and, and Engage with those students, and easily I can be misunderstood. And, and we want to have a testimony to the families as well. We are providing a safe place for, for teens after school. And yet a, a student will go home and tell their parents a story about something bad and this evil man that chased them away. How am I going to be misunderstood? And yet I've got to engage People around me with the gospel. Sometimes I will be misunderstood. Sometimes people will hear what I have to say, but I've got to engage. Can God use me? I'm not sure I'm ready yet. I'm not sure I know enough yet. Do you remember in Mark the story of the demoniac that, that um, he was the guy who was in the graveyard and he was he'd been he tried they tried to bind him with chains and yet the, the the demonic spirit that was in him caused him to break those chains and he was a wild man out there in the graveyard. And Jesus comes and casts the demon out of him and makes him whole. And what does he want to do? He wants to go with Jesus. Wherever Jesus' band is going next, he wants to go with them. And Jesus says, no, you stay here. Why? Because they know you. They know who you were. They see who you now are. You've got something. You haven't had a lot of preparation. You haven't had a lot of discipling time. You haven't gone through this kind of formal learning. But you know what I have done for you, Jesus says, and that's what you need to tell the people around you who know you. And Jesus leaves them there. Very little preparation. I'm not ready. And yet, Jesus leaves them there to proclaim the gospel to the people of that area. I might be misunderstood. Jesus was all the time. And you see that going through Jesus understood even by his own disciples. We will have misunderstandings even within the church. We will not see eye to eye on some things. And yet, and yet, God has given us something that transcends all of that. And that is to speak for the one who came not to be served. Not to have it my way, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so he says, there will be a price to pay. There will be rejection. There will be opposition. You will be misunderstood. You will not always be embraced. And yet, though there is a price to pay, don't be intimidated by the trouble at present because serving precedes the glory which is to come. Don't be intimidated by the trouble. Don't be held back. Don't be, don't be pressed down by the present intimidation by the trouble that you might run into now, don't let that keep you from going forward because there is glory to come. That's where the Mount of Transfiguration steps into this. The Mount of Transfiguration, right after he says, you have a cross to bear as well. Take up your cross and follow me. Right after that, at the end of chapter 8, comes Mark chapter 9. And there's the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, And I want to read the first eight verses of that chapter, but before I do... Before I do, I want you to think in your minds Moses and Mount Sinai. Remember where there's this great crowd of glory and God speaks to Moses there on the mountain and the different things that happen? I'm going to draw some parallels. Let me read that episode of the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is showing his disciples that some of them will get a glimpse of the kingdom of God. There is trouble now, but there's glory to come. We serve, in, we serve today in the midst of trouble in light of coming glory. Okay. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Or they see, this, or they see the kingdom coming or having come with power. I'm going to give you a glimpse of the glory to come, he says. What's happening on the Mount of Transfiguration is a foreglimpse. Of the kingdom that is coming. After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured, he was changed before them, and his clothing became radiant and tensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and Jesus and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it it's good that we are here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, as if they're they're all equals. Three tabernacles. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Hear Him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Jesus alone. Well, I said that prefigured or that paralleled the Mount of Transfiguration, one of the grandest occurrences of the Old Testament, the giving of the of the first covenant, and here comes Christ, the the uh, the messenger of the new covenant. And here he is on this mountain. After six days there on this mountain, you find that same six-day parallel in the book of Exodus chapter 24. There is this epiphany of glory. God shows up with great glory, a manifestation of glorious presence there on that mountain, both at Sinai and also here in Mark chapter 9. Jesus is joined by Moses here in verse 4. Moses was joined on the mountain by Joshua. Old Testament name for Jesus. I'll throw that one in for free. Fear is the human reaction. Not only here at the Mount Transfer, they were terrified. And remember the description Hebrews gives of that Mount Sinai event and when God comes down and the the mountain shook and the people were terrified. This was a sight that they could not approach. Response of fear. The divine presence is in a cloud in both. There's a voice from heaven who speaks, and each time on Sinai and on this mountain, God says, Listen, hear him. God's voice says, Hear him. God said that here in the Mount Transfiguration. Moses said the same thing in Deuteronomy 18. One better than Moses is here. John's gospel says it this way. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. In in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses himself said, a better than he would come. He said, said, a prophet like unto me will come to you. The Lord your God will send to you a prophet like unto me from among your brethren. Unto him you must listen. Hear him. And that's the voice of God at the baptism of, Je- of, of Jesus and here on this Mount Transfiguration. Those words that Moses gave, gave God's people echo and continue, hear him. A better than Moses is here. A, a better than Moses is here because Jesus not only keeps the law of Moses for himself, he keeps it for us. What do I mean by that? Well, he kept the law of Moses purposely so that the law, perfectly, the law of Moses had no claim upon him. Nothing he fulfills the law perfectly. He keeps the law for himself, and then he keeps it for us. How does he do that? We do not keep the law perfectly, and the law's claim upon us is this, the soul that sins, it shall die. And Jesus dies. He gives his life, remember John 10 45, or Mark 10.45, he gives his life a ransom for many. He owed the law nothing. He pays our debt against God's holy, righteous standard. He pays that in himself for us. He keeps the law for himself. He keeps the law for us. A better than Moses is here. And with him, a glimpse of coming glory. We serve the Lord today in the light of coming glory. Do not be intimidated by the troubles. We serve in light of coming glory. Well, I want to rush at this point all the way to the end of the Gospel of Mark. I've given you just a few glimpses along the way. We we obviously can't cover the book as a whole working through. And so we come to the end. And that's one of the unique characteristics of the book of Mark. Listen to how the book of Mark ends. And you be thinking in your mind as as we read to this ending, the first eight verses of chapter 16, should it end this way? Is that right? Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. So far, so good. That sounds familiar. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? They don't know yet. They don't know. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. How would anybody do that? And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, apparently an angel present there, and they were alarmed. They were scared. They said to them, he said to them, Do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Why Peter in particular? Well, Peter was the one who denied him at his arrest and trial. Peter denied, after he's warned him, Peter denies him three times. Peter, in this era, the leader of the church in Rome, had a history. He shared, Peter shared the experience of those disciples, those Christians in Rome. Peter knew what it was to be pressed and threatened. And if I speak up, it's going to cost me. And Peter knew what it was to withdraw instead. And Jesus says, go tell his disciples, and Peter especially, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And so how do they respond? And they went out, and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment. They're scared, and yet they're like, wow, had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid end of the Gospel of Mark now some of you look down and you say well wait my, my Bible goes a little further than that yes there's an extending there's an extended ending to Mark but, but everybody who, 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 who studies, the, studies today well, I can't say everybody everybody doesn't agree on anything but the consensus today is that and as, if you read it in English you will see that from 9 it's like chapter 16 starts over again with more details thrown in about what happened further but it's not a continuation it doesn't flow it doesn't even quite sound like the first eight verses it doesn't read like it doesn't sound like mark it's different it was added on I want to explain that it should have been added on it should be in your Bibles but also you should know that originally when Mark wrote it he stopped it at chapter 8 and he stopped it there for a reason because when you stop it there Jesus says go and tell them and they do what They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Should it end there? Should it end there? You're not sure? It it didn't feel like it should end there. This grand story of Jesus who died and rose, it can't end there. They don't say anything to anybody, and you know it didn't end there. You know that. You've read into Acts, perhaps. You've read the other gospel accounts. You know that, yeah, there was some fear and trembling. There was some apprehension. There was a a slow start. But the church moved out, and the church still moves out. Sometimes there's a slow start. There's some fear. There's some hesitancy. There's some apprehension, and yet the church moves out. Well... There's there's really some kick-starting that has to happen here in order to get that to happen. Uh, as you read on in verse 9, because it can't end that way, then, then soon the church adds on to the gospel. Somebody else comes along and adds on more of the story. Well, it didn't end there, church. We need to be reminded that it didn't end. It did go on. He arose early in the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene when she had cast out... whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him. It doesn't mention the hesitancy. And they mourned and wept, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen, they would not believe it. And after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they're walking on the road in the country. There's, there's the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And they went back and they told the rest, but they did not believe them. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at a table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. He talks about the apostolic signs that continued. You see them in the book of Acts. You saw them in the first century church. And things got going. But it took some pushes from the, from the Lord himself to get the church moving, didn't it? Their inclination with the powers that be in the environment that they found themselves in was one of hesitancy, fear, holding back. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is supposed to confront us on. Now, these, these women who came to the tomb, initially who said they told no one because they were afraid, was that because they were cowards? Were they cowards? You're not cowards. You do a lot of scary things. But this one is, is, is hard. They weren't cowards. They were coming to the graveyard at the earliest, still a little dark part of the morning. They were coming not knowing how they were going to finish the job, they didn't know how they were going to open the tomb and yet they were coming. They were coming planning with their spices and ointments to go into a tomb and anoint a body that they presumed had been there for 3 days in the warm Middle Eastern environment. They were not cowards. They were not up they were not drawing back just because something was difficult. But this good news is unbelievably good news. And you have been entrusted with a message to tell somebody else that you can expect that unless God does something, the person you tell is not going to believe. Isn't that encouraging? Right on. I am going to step out. I am going to maybe look like a fool and they're not going to believe me. They might mock at me. They might might hold it against me. They might ridicule me. They may think less of me that I'm not the sharpest tool in the box if I really believe that stuff. The only way they're going to believe it if like Jesus told Peter, the Father himself has revealed this to you. The only way they're going to believe what you say is if the Holy Spirit illuminates and helps them to do that. Oh, yeah, if you're scared, well, the first thing you ought to do is pray. Pray, God, give me entrance into those that you give me to speak to. But the gospel of Mark cannot end in chapter 8. Who is Jesus? He is the faithful servant of God. Did you catch how the gospel began? Wordplay. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ was Jesus in his time with his disciples and spurring them forward. That was the beginning. Where we get cut off at chapter 8, that is only supposed to be the rough beginning. There is much to do, and we are the ones. That's what Mark is telling us. Don't be intimidated by the environment that you find yourselves in. We're going to sing a song in just a minute. And it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fairly new song. You've you probably heard it on the radio. So as, as, as the worship team leads it, uh, go ahead and join in as you, as you find the melody and you recognize the words. But don't miss the story. It's the song of Peter stepping out of the boat onto the waves. That part of the story that Mark leaves out. Because the disciples are afraid, and that's what Mark is emphasizing. When you're afraid, you don't need a guilt trip. You don't need somebody poking you or elbowing you and saying, Oh, you shouldn't be afraid. What's wrong with you? You're like them. We're like them. And yet, our Jesus is the Son of God. He is the faithful servant who would serve his Father through suffering, through hardship, to coming glory. And so can I. So can you. So can we. That's the message of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is telling us that this is just the beginning. He who began a good work will continue to do it. And like he would use Peter, like he would use Thomas, like he would use Mark. Who is Mark? Wasn't Mark the one who on the first missionary journey Caved. Yeah. Yeah. You say, I can identify with Mark. Mark says, it's the beginning. Let's go. Would you pray with me? Father, give us that courage. Give us that boldness, Lord. Give us that strength to to lean not on our own ability. God, not on our own strength, but give us, Lord, the, the confidence in who your son is. That because he was willing to give his life a ransom for others. He was willing to, to, to serve, not to be served. Lord, we ask you so many times to serve us, to protect us, to, to provide for us. Oh, Lord, would you give us the courage to take what you've given us, take what you put in our hands. Lord, where you have set us, rather than needing to be safe, Lord, would you give us the courage to say something, to listen well, to sense by your Spirit the opening and the opportunity and Lord, then would you give us the courage to step into it. Lord, would you, would you show us, Lord, with people around us, those you placed us among, Lord, would you show us how you, the, the gospel begins and continues because our Jesus is indeed risen and we do not need to be afraid. Thank you for that, Lord. We ask you to accept our offering, Lord. We pray that these gifts given back to you, Lord, would be simply a token of our, our confidence. We need not even keep this for ourselves because we can trust you. You will provide for us. Lord, in that testament of faith, Lord, strengthen our hearts that you might use us for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all who believe, said.